right, thanks very much. Uh, Gabrielle D'Annunzio had basically two careers, one of which was as a writer and as a and the other was as a politician and a national figure. Um, if you look him up on Wikipedia, there's a strange incident which occurred in 1922 when D'Annunzio was pushed out of a window several floors up in a particular dwelling and was badly injured and semi-crippled for a while. And of course, this was during a crucial period in Italian politics because Mussolini emerged as leader of the country and was made prime minister after the march of Rome under a still monarchical system and absorbed and swallowed all up all, up all other Italian parties to form the fascist state in Italy that lasted right until the end of the Second World War. Now, D'Annunzio, as a figure, was involved in the romantic and decadent movement in Italian literature. He wrote a large number of plays, large, quite a large number of operas, large number of novels, and some short story collections. He was too controversial ever to be awarded something like the Nobel Prize, but at the beginning of Italy's 20th century period, he was one of the most popular people in Italy. Almost everyone had an opinion about him, and almost everyone had heard of him. His work combines various pagan, vitalist, and Nietzschean forces, and he was heavily influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche and his philosophy. Um, some of his works were banned on grounds of public morals, both in translation abroad and in Italy per se. The Flame of Life, which was one of his books, was one of his more ecstatic and Byronic celebrations of life. Um, the uh, Throne of Death was another of his works. Uh, the Virgins of the Rocks was another one. And a poem called Halcyon, which was part of a interconnected series of poems, five in number, he was going to draw a, write a larger collection than this, but those were the ones that got done, also celebrates the Renaissance period and the period of Italian greatness when Italian civilization became synonymous with Western civilization and indeed looked to put its stamp upon world civility. So D'Annunzio brought together a wide number of strands which supervened in Italian politics and culture since the unification of Italy under Garibaldi in the 19th century. Like Germany, Italy was unified as a modern European nation-state quite late in the day, and a triumphant sense of national vanguardism, identity, and pressure and force was always part of D'Annunzio's ideology. Superficially, it seems strange that you have artists of extreme individuality like Maurice Barres in France in the 1890s who wrote a book called Me, Moi, uh, My Ego, along Nietzschean and Sternite lines and professed a very extreme individuality, were also ardent nationalists. And this is because this uh, cult of the heroic individual and this <coughs> cult of the masculinist and this cult of the superman and the cult of the pagan individual that D.H. Lawrence's novels in English literature could be said to be part and parcel of, at least at one degree, that went hand in glove with the belief in national renaissance and national glory. The great individual was seen as a prototype of the great man of the nation and was seen as a national leader in embryo, whether or not the work took on any political coloration at all. So what appears to be the uh, collective doctrine and what appears to be an individualistic doctrine marry up and come together and cohere in various creative ways. And this was part of the cultural tension of the late 19th century. 
D'Annunzio is a 19th century figure who explodes into the 20th century by virtue of mechanized politics. Uh, deaths and the pursuit of various people to whom he owned money because of his extraordinarily lavish and aristocratic lifestyle led D'Annunzio to live in France at the time of the outbreak of the Great War. But he soon hurried back to Italy in order to demand Italy's entry into the Great War on the Allied or Western or tripartite side. Of course, in the Great War, Italy fought with the Western Allies, with France, with Russia, and with Britain, against Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman or Turkish Empire, um, in the convulsive conflict which people who lived through it thought would be the war to end all wars. D'Annunzio had an extraordinary war. He joined up when he was around 50 years of age, and gravitated towards the more aristocratic arm of the three that was then available. It's noticeable that the war in the air attracted a debonair, an individualistic, and an aristocratic penchant. It figures as diverse as Goering in the German Air Force, and Mosley in the British Air Force, and Annunzio in the Italian Air Force, all fought a war that in its way had little to do with the extraordinarily mechanized armies that were fighting on the ground. You had this strange differentiation between massive armies in fortifications of steel with tunnels with a sort of turning the surface of the earth and like the surface of the moon down on the ground until tanks were developed which could uh, cut through the sterile nature of the attrition at the front, a very static form of warfare from 1915 until the war's end in 1917-18, and yet above it, you had this freedom of combat, this freedom in the air with biplanes, which were stretched together from canvas and wood and wire, <coughs> were extraordinarily flimsy by modern standards, uh, without parachutes for the most part, and where the men often used to fire guns and pistols at each other before machine guns were actually fixed to the wings so they could actually fire on each other in flight. There was a cult of chivalry on all sides in the air, which really didn't superintend on the, with the massive forces that were arrayed against each other on the ground. And this enabled a spiritual dimension to the war in the air that was commented upon by many of the men who fought at that level. This, in turn, reflected the sort of joy de vivre and the belief in danger and force that aligned D'Annunzio with the futurist movement of Marinetti and with many anti-bourgeois uh, currents in cultural and aesthetic life at the time. As the 19th century drew to a close, there came a large range of thinkers and writers, such as Maurice Burroughs in France, such as D'Annunzio and Marinetti in Italy, uh, who were appalled by the sterility of late 19th century life and yearned for the conflicts which would engulf uh, Europe and the world in the next century. You have a situation where each era, such as the one that we're in at the moment, precedes what is coming with all sorts of conflicted and heterogeneous ideologies, which only become clear when you've actually lived through the subsequent period. Between about 1880 and 1910, an enormous ferment of opinion with men as voluble as Stalin and Hitler being in cafes, <coughs> in cafe society parts of Europe, planning what was to come, or what they might be alleged to be part of at certain distant times. Men often dismissed as cranks and dreamers and wayfaring utopians on the margins of things who were destined later on to leap to the center of European culture and expectancy. 
There's a great story that the French writer Jean Cocteau says about Lenin. He met a man at a party in a house in France in 1910, and the man was sitting in the house. In other words, he was looking after him when someone was away. And Cocteau said to his friends, and who are you? And the man said rather portentously, men call me Vladimir Lenin Arnold. I am known as Lenin. I am plotting the destruction of the Russian Tsarist regime, and I am going to wipe out the entire ruling class in Russia and install a proletarian dictatorship, straight out, without any intermission. And they all said, well, that's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> One applauds you, monsieur. And he said, what are you doing at the moment? And he said, I edit a small journal called Iskra, the spark, which is the beginning of the ferment of the revolutionary energies which are coming to Russia and eventually the world. And they thought, well, this is interesting. You know, how many subscribers has Iskra got at that moment? 400? 40? 4? You know, and yet, of course... Vladimir Ilyich Yulanov would emerge uh, from the chaos of post-revolutionary Russia as Russia struggled from its defeat by the Germans in the First World War to become the leader of the world's first sort of most toxic revolutionary state. Nothing is predictable in this life when the German high command sealed the Bolshevik leadership, including Vladimir Ilyich, in a train and sent it through their occupied territories into Greater Russia in the hope that it would just create more more chaos and foment more distress. They had no idea that this tiny little faction would seize maybe 11 or 12 percent in parliamentary votes and would then take over a weakened state with a small paramilitary force. Because the Bolshevik Revolution was no, in no sense a social revolution, as it proselytised its claim for upwards of half a century afterwards. It was an armed coup by this armed wing of a tiny political party. There's a famous story that Lenin, Trotsky and Stalin all slept together in one room with newspaper on the uh, floor the day after the revolution. And Lenin said, comrades, a very important thing has happened. We have been in power for one day. Because, and the amount of Russia that they controlled, of course, was extraordinarily small. So one has to realize that this ferment of ideas, right, left, and center, uh, religious, aesthetic, and otherwise, occurred between 1880 and the beginning of the period that led up to the Great War, and out of which most of the modern ideologies of the first half to first three quarters of the 20th century emerged. D'Annunzio largely created Italian fascism. Nearly everything that came out of the movement led by Mussolini at a later day originated with him and his ideas. The idea of the man alone set above the people who's yet one of them. The idea of a, a squad of arditi, of people who are passionate and fanatical and frenzied with a stiff arm Roman salute, who are dressed in black and who are an audience for the leader as well as security for the leader as well as a sort of prop to make sure that the masses, particularly in the crowd when they're listening to the leader, go along with what the leader is saying, as well as a sort of nationalist chorus. All of these ideas come from D'Annunzio and his period of forced occupation and Italianization of the port of Fiume. So there's a degree to which this possible assassination attempted against D'Annunzio in 1922, which pushed him out of commission for a certain period, was in its way emblematic of the fact that he was a key player in Italian politics. He was the only rival for the leadership of what became known as the extreme right with Mussolini. 
certain fascists at times looked to D'Annunzio when the fortunes of their own movement dipped. It's noticeable that during the occupation of Fiume, which we'll come on to a bit later in this talk, um, D'Annunzio <coughs> thought that there should be a march on Rome and wished to ally himself with the fascists and other forces of renewal and nationalistic frenzy in Italian life after Italy's victory as part of the winning side uh, during the Great War. That march never happened, but of course was to happen later when Mussolini and other leaders had engaged in deals with the existing Italian establishment. Well, the Mussolini march on power was a coup with the favour of the state it was taking over, rather than a coup against the nature of the state which was hostile to what was coming. So in a way, the Italian march was leaning on a door that was already open, and only forces like Italian communism and so on, which are outside the circle of the state and its reference political resources, opposed what the Mussolinians then did. There is this view that Mussolini and the fascist movement regularised and slightly de-romanticised the heroic conspectus of what D'Annunzio stood for. D'Annunzio was an artist, and when Fiume, which is uh, part of Croatia, was taken over by his militia between 1,000 and 3,000 strong in the early 1920s because it had an Italian majority and he wished to secure it for Italy in relation to the post-Great War dispensation. Um, he made music the foundation stone of the, of the city-state of Fiume. And there's a degree to which this is part of the extreme rhetoricism and aestheticism that D'Annunzio was into. This is not practical politics to, to, to make music your cardinal state virtue and to create um, idealized state assemblies with the minimum of chatter because D'Annunzio believed not in parliamentary democracy but in a form of civics whereby each participant of the nation was represented. That's why at Fuma he begins the prospect of a corporate state and he begins uh, an assembly or a vouchsafe body for farmers for workers, for employers, for the clergy, for industrialists, and so on, in the manner that Mussolini would later take over. Because most of what the Mussolinians did was actually pre-ordained for them by D'Annunzio's moral and aesthetic coup d'etat. Now, D'Annunzio believed that life should be uh, brief and hectic and as heroic as possible, and that the Italians should be based upon the principles of the ancient Roman Empire and of the Renaissance. In other words, he quested through Italian period of phases of thousands of years of culture for the highest possible spots upon which to base Italy in the 20th century. At his funeral, which occurred in 1938, Mussolini declared that Italy will indeed rise to the heights of which you, of which you wished. And D'Annunzio always wanted Italy to be on the winning side and to be a major player in international and European events. The truth of the matter, of course, is that Italy, for most of its 20th century existence, has not been a minor player, but has not been amongst the major players, has been the second tier powers of Europe in all reality. And there's a degree to which many Italian military adventures, which were initiated by Mussolini, fell back on German tutelage and support when they ran into difficulties. Although those imperial adventures in Ethiopia and elsewhere were supported by D'Annunzio, who became very close to the regime when he uh, realized that they wished to set up a neo-Italian empire along Romanist lines. Um, D'Annunzio also supported Mussolini in leaving the League of Nations 
and he believed that oppressed Italians who lived outside of Italy proper should be included in an irredentist way in Italy proper. Irredentism is the idea that if you have people of your own nationality who live outside the area of your nation state, you should incorporate them uh, in one way or another by conquering intermediate territory or by agglomerating them back into a larger confederation. This is the idea of having a greater country, Britain and the greater Britain, Italy and the greater Italy, Russia and the greater Russia, and so forth. There's a degree to which D'Annunzio aligned himself with the forces of conceptual modernism without being a modernist himself, because in a literary and linguistic way, he was very much a romantic of the 19th century vogue. But his sensibility was extraordinarily modern. In contemporary Italian literature, there is no easy uh, and defined position about D'Annunzio. One would have thought that a man who died in 1938 and his political career was over by 1922, to all effects, would be historical now. D'Annunzio is still a live topic in Italy and is still controversial, not least because of the sort of Byronic quote-unquote sexism of his novels, poetry and plays, uh, screenplay indeed in one case, and operas, uh, a libretto for various operas. Also the fact that he is such a precursor of Italian fascism to the degree that he's regarded as the first duce, the first leader, the first fascistic leader of any prominence that Italy had to form Mussolini, that his reputation is still extremely divisive in Italian letters. Most of the centre and left, when Denunzio's name is mentioned in Italy today, still go, ah, no, you know, because he is still a figure that he's, he is a sort of, um, uh, if you can imagine, uh, a sort of fascistic D.H. Lawrence who later had Mosley's political career up to a point. That's the nearest you get to a British example of a man like D'Annunzio. Lawrence, of course, would have a completely different reputation had he endorsed the politics of Nazi Germany in the way that he sort of endorsed, slightly, the politics of fascistic Italy. Uh, in some ways, Lawrence, who was sort of made into a cult by the Cambridge literary criticism of F.R. Leavis, in Britain, and I.A. Richards in the United States, post-Second World War, would never have, never have acceded to those heights had he endorsed certain political causes of the 30s and 40s. So in a sense, his, his early death was uh, fortuitous in terms of his post-war reputation. Robertson Jeffers, the American poet and fellow pagan with whom uh, Lawrence uh, communicated during his life quite manfully, um, fell into duetitude after the Second World War for not advocating pro-Axis sympathy as a neutralist American, but by advocating isolationism. Isolationism is, of course, an ultra-nationalist position in American life, the belief that America should not involve itself in the teeming wars of the 20th century, what Elmer Barnes calls perpetual poor war for perpetual peace. Uh, but America should retreat to its own borders and only concern itself with events inside the United States of America, occasionally looking outside to the Caribbean and Latin America. But Lawrence would have gone the same way as Jeffers had he had a career like D'Annunzio and had he endorsed some of the positions that D'Annunzio did. D'Annunzio's position on fascism outside Italy was more contradictory because he was a nationalist first and last and ultimately, it was Italy's destiny that concerned him, not that of other countries. He was in favour of leaving the United Nations, 
but rather like Charles Bourgeois in France, he was a nationalist in some ways more than a fascist, and his nationalism was proto-fascistic, even though he provided much of the aesthetic colouring for what later came in the Italian political dictatorship. D'Annunzio was a man of great individual courage, it has to be said, and combined the ferocity of the warrior and the sensibility of the artist. One of his most famous individual coups was this 700-mile round trip in an aeroplane to drop pamphlets of a sort of a pro-Western, pro-Italian type on Vienna, which is still remembered to this day. And another of his feats was attacking various German boats with small little uh, motor-powered launches, something which prefigures a lot of modern warfare, where great, large, hulking liners and aircraft carrier can be disabled by small boats uh, that speed around them, the principle of guerrilla type or asymmetrical warfare, whereby much larger entities can be hamstrung by their smaller and Lilliputian uh, equivalents or rivals. Uh, again, those sorts of warfare, the sort of special forces warfare in a way, whether in the air or on the sea, was part and parcel of D'Annunzio's aesthetic and ethic of life. It's noticeable that in modern in warfare, the notion of individualistic courage never goes away, but war is so much reduced to the big battalions, so much reduced to raw firepower, and so much reduced to the expenditure of force between massive <coughs> units that are industrially arranged against each other, that individual combat often becomes slightly meaningless, but it gravitates to certain areas. The sniper, the elite boatman or frogman, the elite warrior in the air, becomes the equivalent of the lone warrior, uh, loyal to sort of ideologies of warriorship in previous civilizations. And you can see this in the way that these men think about themselves and think about their own missions. Uh, in a previous talk to a gathering such as this, I spoke about Yuko Mishima and the ideology of the samurai based upon the cult of Bushido in Japan. This is the idea of almost an aesthetic martial elitism that sees itself both in artistic and religious terms, and yet is also a morality for killing. All of these things are provided for in one package, and a man like D'Annunzio did incarnate many of these values in a purely uh, Western and Southern European sense. D'Annunzio's war record was such that he won most of the medals, including the gold medal, the equivalent of the Victoria Cross, and he won silver crosses, which was a slightly lesser medal, and a bronze cross. He was also awarded other medals, including a British military cross, because, of course, he was fighting on the British and Allied side in the First War. One of his points, which was made by Mussolini and other Italian nationalists, was that Italy did not get from the First War the post-war dispensation which they expected. This is true almost to everybody, essentially. But it's certainly true that Italy was thrust back into the power of secondary power, into the pack, sorry, of secondary powers by the major victors in this First World War, Britain and the United States and France. And their role in the post-war peace which was, of course, a highly uh, tortuous and afflictive piece upon the defeated Germany, which was to have major repercussions in the decades that followed, that piece had little to do with what Italy wanted. One of the reasons for the occupation of what later became a part of Yugoslavia 
by paramilitary Italian arms led by D'Annunzio was his dissatisfaction with Italy's role at the table after the Great War, his belief in one Italy and Italy forever, and where an Italian felt injustice, Italy must be there to protect them. This belief that caused thousands of men to rise up and, and come to D'Annunzio's banner when he began his uh, assault on Fiume, he had about 300 men with him. By the time it was over, he had about 3,000. And on the internet, you can see, in 1921, um, enormous crowds in the city, almost everyone who's in the city is there, cheering on D'Annunzio, who engaged in this increasing rhetoric from the balcony. Indeed, the Mussolinian stage scene, whereby the dictator figure, or dictator Monquet in this case, addresses the masses who look up to a balcony is all constructed, often lit up by stage lights and that sort of thing. It's all part and parcel of Denunzionian theatre. Denunzio will always ask the trier the uh, proud rhetorical questions. Do you love Italy? And there's this response, yes! And then there'll be another response from Denunzio, and then there'll be another response. And uh, if somebody gives uh, a contrary uh, sort of response in the crowd, because these are enormous mass meetings which are difficult to control, he has squads of men dressed in black positioned in the crowd who can sort various sort uh, of malefactors out. And this combination of support with a degree of psychological bullying is all part of the festival of nationalistic spirit that somebody like D'Annunzio believes in building almost as a theatrical event where you let the crowd down over time through by stoking them up into more and more responses and you allow moments where the crowd just bellows and howls in response until they're replete and exhausted and the man strides back to the edge of the balcony to begin a speech. All of these are things which uh, Mussolini would later develop. So D'Annunzio in a sense provides a theatrical package for what becomes Italian and Southern European radical nationalism at a later time. He didn't live to see the full extent of Italian fascism, but he had to be kept sweet by the Mussolinian government. Mussolini was once asked by a fellow fascist leader in Italy what he thought of D'Annunzio and why he behaved in relation to him in the way that he did. And he said, when you have a rotten tooth, there are two solutions. You either pull it out violently or you pack it with gold. And I've decided on the secondary option with D'Annunzio. So D'Annunzio was given a large amount of money by the Italian state to swear off political involvement after 1922, something that makes the possible assassination of him in 1922, or attempted assassination, rather interesting and mysterious. No one knows whether that was an attempted assassination or not. It's quite obscure in the historical literature, but it certainly put D'Annunzio back, and it put him out of commission for the entire period that the Mussolinians marched to power, quite literally. Later on, he would be awarded the leadership of the equivalent of the Royal Society of Arts. He would be awarded a state bursary, which paid for uh, all, a collected edition of his works that was um, printed and published by the Italian state itself and will be available in all libraries and schools and universities. He was awarded numerous medals and forms of honour. His house was turned into a museum, which still exists, and one is, a, one is one of the major tourist sites in contemporary Italy. 
where planes which he flew in the Great War are restored and can be looked at, boats which he used in the Great War are restored and can be looked at, uh, as well as a library, a military research institute, and all sorts of photographs from the period. There is a large mausoleum to him, which is a contemporary Italian monument of significance, and he's compared in some ways to Garibaldi, the figure in the 19th century with his red shirt movement that helped unite Italy um, as a warring patchwork quilt of a nationality into one overall nation state along modern lines. D'Annunzio is one of these synthetic and syncretic figures who combine in themselves several different lives, lover, soldier, aesthete, political warrior, writer, artist. He combined four or five lives in one particular lifespan and brought together all sorts of confluences in the Italian politics of his day. When he was elected to the Senate as an independently minded conservative at the end of the 19th century, he had no real sectarian politics at all except a belief in conservatism and revolution as he described it. He later moved across the parliament floor to join the left in a particular vote that, drove, that broke a deadlock in Italian politics at the time and was regarded as the creation of a new synthesis where part of the right joined the left and then split off again to form a different part of the right or could at least be said to be a precursor of those same developments. Mussolini, of course, was sacked with the socialists and was a socialist deputy <coughs> and was part of the bloc which favoured nationalist rather than international solutions as part of Italian socialism. This is why during the First World War, or the run-up to it, the axis within Italy that favoured Italy's involvement in the war against strong pacifist and internationalist currents that wanted to keep Italy out of the European conflagration lost out. And one of the key proponents were the futurists, denunzians, and proto-fascists from the bosom of the Italian Socialist Party, who combined a degree of nationalism with quite straightforward Italian social democracy of the period. Now, D'Annunzio uh, married and had, I think, three children, but it was well known for a very torrid love life, consisting of a great string of mistresses. Um, he had dalliances with two uh, extraordinarily notorious Italian actresses, both of whom, both of whom he wrote plays for and operetta. He was well regarded as a sort of um, a bon viveur and a figure of, about whom myths constellate. Even to this day, D'Annunzio is regarded as a, a cad and an egotist and a scoundrel in many circles because that's how, that is how he presented himself and the male ego in his literary works. Um, how original D'Annunzio was is difficult to quantify. His, his philosophical debt is to Nietzsche, his uh, literary debt is to the Italian literary tradition, which essentially goes back to the Renaissance. His great use of style, he was one of the greatest stylists of the modern Italian language, has made sure that his books are in print to this day, but he still remains a controversial figure because of the politics with which he was associated. How far 
an aesthetically motivated desire for dictatorship could work in practice and would not implode because of its impracticality is a new point. But D'Annunzio certainly gave a brio to early Italian experimental and right-wing politics. He gave a poetic license to authoritarianism which helped make southern European fascism extraordinarily <coughs> culturally interesting long into the Mussolini regime. It's interesting to notice how many writers and intellectuals aligned with the movement in Italy and made peace with its government. Also, the use of internal repression, which is very light-handed in Italy, was part and parcel of this doctrine of brio and of uh, uh, ubiquitousness in the use of style. In some ways, it was a very style-conscious regime, um, an exercise in theatre. Many of the post-war historians of fascist Italy talk about it as being a sort of theatrical uh, society with Mussolini as, a, as almost a political actor in some respects. And this is very much in the Denunzian tradition, um, which he laid down at Fiume. At Fiume, they conquered this city, which is uh, part of Croatia, but had an Italian majority at that time. The Italian governor refused to fire on Denunzio and his paramilitaries when they entered the city. They took it over and created a sort of corporate state within the city, heralding its creation as a city-state. They said it left the League of Nations, which they refused to recognise, because Italians were being exploited by the remit of the League of Nations, the forerunner of the United Nations. Um, they created this sort of aesthetic, fascistic junta that was part theatre, part hyper-reality, and part just a governing civic administration with a military arm. And gradually the forces of reaction, as Delanzo would have called them, uh, attempted to call Fiume to account. The Allies chafed against its continued existence as an independent military satellite and city-state. Italian nationalists and others may have flocked to it, including leftists like anarchists and syndicalists who admired D'Annunzio's brio and sort of cult of machismo and Italian uh, irregular adventurism, which is a medieval tradition. Um, certainly an antique Italian tradition with many admirers from across the spectrum. And yet in the end, the Italian state was forced to take action and fired on Fiume. And Italian naval vessels shelled the city. Um, there was a declaration of war, somewhat absurdly, against Italy by D'Annunzio, where 3,000 men took on a nation-state that could put tens of thousands of men and boats and planes into play. Eventually, of course, when the shelling became too bad, he said he could not allow the aesthetic construction of the city to be damaged, and so he handed it over to prior Italian power and an international settlement, which involved Yugoslav control, eventually came in. But Fiume represented a direct incursion of fantasy into political life, because there is a degree to which D'Annunzio combined elements of performance art in his political vocabulary. There's no doubt that he thought of politics as a form of theatre, particularly for the masses, and this is because he was an elitist. Because as an elitist, he partly despised the masses, except as the voluntarist agencies of the national consciousness, 
you theatricalise politics in order to give them entertainment without allowing them any particular say in what should be done. And so this idea of politics as performance art with the masses on stage but as an audience, an audience that responded and yet was not in charge because there's nothing democratic about Denuncio from his individualistic egotism as an artist all the way through to his sort of um, quasi-dictatorship of Fiume. So he represented a particularly pure synthesis and the violence that was used and so on was largely rhetorical, largely staged, largely a performance, partly a sort of theatre piece. Uh, in the, in the postmodernism, there's this idea that artists crash cars and blow up buildings and put, exhibit what they've done in gallery spaces and that sort of thing as an attempted incursion of reality into the artistic space. And Denunzio did it the other way around. There was a sort of incursion, not of reality into the artistic space, but of artistry into the political space. And he went seamlessly from writing these novels of male chauvinism and excess, and uh, erotic predatoriness, and Italian brio, to running a city-state, almost without any sort of uh, marked gap between the two moments. And in the chaotic situation of post-Great War Italy and its environs, he found a template upon which his uh, dreams, his critics would say, his bombastic dreams, could be lived out. And there is a sort of dreamer of the day element to Denunzio, but he was also quite hard-headed and practical, and most of his political exercises in chauvinism came off, unlike many dreams that remain in the scrap heap of political alternatives. So in a sense, Denunzio's greatest novel was the creation of what became the Italian fascist state, which until it was defeated externally and internally, was one of the most stable societies modern Europe has seen. So this belief in a nation's ability to renew itself by bringing various tendencies that are abroad within it together and synthesising them through the will of one man who must be a visionary of one sort or another is part and parcel of Denunzio's legacy. It's why he can't settle down and just be an artist. It's why indeed his post-war Italian reputation is so mixed because he can't be divorced from the politician and the statesman that he indeed was. It's interesting to think of what how the world would have developed if European nationalities had increasingly fallen under the sway of these cross-bred, artistic, hybridised figures. Um, nearly all far-left and far-right and some far-left leaders have these sorts of uh, characteristics, extreme individuality, uh, colourful backgrounds and pasts, a sort of anti-bourgeois sentiment, a refusal to live a conventional life completely, the belief in new forms and the construction of new forms of modernity almost in a haphazard and experimental way. These people only get their chance during war, economic breakdown, chaos and revolutionary change when everything comes up for grabs and there is a new dispensation abroad. But it is noticeable that these people do get their chance when these events occur. 
It's also noticeable that the post-war period, very much in Western Europe at any rate, is dominated by two factors. One is the Cold War, which congeals the continent into two rival blocks. And the other, under partial American domination of the Western sector and direct Soviet domination, of course, of the Eastern bloc. But the second is a fear, the fear of contamination through change, which is underpinned by the desire to keep market economies functioning at a tolerable level of sufficiency. It's quite obvious that there is a terror abroad in the Western liberal landscape about what would occur if there is an economic collapse, not just a slowdown, not just a depression or recession or series of recessions that ends in a Japanese-like depression which can go on for 20 years, where you don't grow at all, there's zero growth, but something much more devastating than that, an actual crack and crash in the system itself. Because with that mass democracy, there is no knowing what sorts of demagogues and what sorts of visionaries people might start voting for in small or larger numbers when such a crash occurs and when they literally can't pay their bills. And so Denunzio came out of an era of chronic instability and fashioned that instability to his own liking and making because Fiume was the prototype for a state. Indeed, in course, the ancient southern Europe, the city-state was the forerunner of the nation-state. He was attempting to do with an Athens or a Sparta of his own imagination, will and intellect what later became Mussolini in Italy on a nationwide scale. And if Italy had succeeded in carving out an empire for itself in North Africa and further afield in modernity, would have been the basis for an Italian empire because the nature of these things is to expand. That type of power always chafes against the possibility of restriction. And unless it comes up against a greater external force, would always chafe against it and attempt to push it back and gain greater suzerainty thereby. That's inevitable. Even the, uh, under a mercantilist pressure, the British Empire adopted that sort of course for many centuries until, if you like, the stabilisation of the 20th century and the loss of empire in mid-century. So one will see, if there are enormous economic crashes in the near to distant future, the sort of politics that Denunzio represented come back no one knows what form it will take, because things never repeat themselves. They only seem to, because the syntheses that are created are always new and always original. But this crossover between theatre, literature, lived demagoguery, the martial and martinet spirit, and the spirit of the lone adventurer, the spirit of the marauder, the spirit of the armed <coughs> troubadour, is very much a part and parcel of what Denunzio stood for, and his present notoriety in contemporary Italy is because he's a man of so many parts and such a threatening overall presence. Threatening in the sense that Italian fascism, although much more integrated into the historical story than fascisms elsewhere, is still very much um, a devilish shadow cast over the post-Italian polity. That, fear, that many are, that all are aware of, and yet few dare to speak of with any uh, courage or glory. Denunzio believed that courage and glory and a heroic belief in national affirmation were the very principles of life. And his example, so out of kilter with contemporary reality, is interesting and refreshing. Denunzio is like a sort of um, 
Julius Caesar crossed with Jack London is a strange amalgam of tendencies living out of one man. And it is remarkable that he could bring that union or fusion off with such panache and charisma. Probably it's the military career that he had during the Great War that enabled him to step out of the literary study and into the statesman's um, counting house, into the statesman, onto the statesman's balcony. Without that experience in the Great War, I doubt he would have had the following to achieve that. But Denuncio represents this strange amalgam in European man of the restless adventurer and the poet, of the dreamer and the activist, of the stoic and the fanatic. The uh, city-state that he created at Fiume provided for religious toleration and atheism, because of course as a Nietzschean, but Denuncio was an atheist and was not religiously motivated, even though the paganism of his literature harks back to the neo-paganism of the Renaissance and to the Italian and to the Roman Empire of antiquity. The real source and origin for Denunzio's moral equipment has to be ancient Rome. And as I look about me in this society, there are an enormous number of novels, aren't they, devoted to ancient Rome, quite populist, mainstream fare. And it's quite clear that there is a fascination with Europe's past and with its authoritarian, bellicose, adventurist and escapist past. And possibly, through the mirror image of intermediaries like Denuncio, there may be a link to a new and a more invigorated Europe of adventure <coughs> and of skill and of destiny and of the will of the desperado and of the man who will never take no for an answer and of the man who would chant these slogans that Achilles uses in Homeric epics to the crowd and hear the Aditi chant them back again. And that these are echoes which you can still hear and which are still not entirely dormant in Europe at the present time, as the Balkan Wars of the 1990s proved in their bloody way. And there's a degree to which these prior giants of Europe are sleeping, but are not at rest. And there is always the fear in contemporary liberal establishments that these figures and the forces that they represented will be canalised yet again in the future by new visionaries and by new leaders and by new literati and by new sources of inspiration who combine the individual and the collective, combine the national and, and the quietude of the man alone and combine the Renaissance and the ancient world in a new pedigree of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a European, and what it means to have a destiny in the modern world. Denuncio pre-configured much of European history until at least the late 1940s, which bearing in mind he was born towards the middle of the 19th century was quite an achievement. Who is not to say that figures who are alive now are in themselves creating the synthesis for forces which will emerge in the next 50 years. Thank you very much.
questions? Yes. Is D'Annunzio influenced by um, Hegelianism by any chance? Because people then say that Hegel was an influence fascism as well as communism. Yes, I don't think he was. I think Hegel does influence fascistic ideas. Um, I don't think... Um, D'Annunzio was a magpie. D'Annunzio took from all sorts of areas. Most of his influences were Renaissance and, uh, and from the ancient world, and also from the, the Byronic type of literature that preceded him in European poetry. Probably the biggest influence on his entire life was Friedrich Nietzsche. So I would say that Friedrich Nietzsche, in an Italianate way, was 20 times the influence on him that anyone else was. While we're doing questions, um, we'll pass the books around. Well, the hats, with the hats, shall we? It's five pounds each, except for the camera crew and the speakers. Uh, two and a half has been registered now at 59, and that's good. Right, any more questions while we're doing that? Yes. Is there a good pocket recommend about Denuncio? Oh, yes. There's a, I can't think of the name of the author, but it's on the Wikipedia page devoted to Denuncio. There's, there's two or three mainstream biographies of Denuncio, um, Superman and Moral Aristocrat, Denuncio, um, Precursor of Mussolini, Denuncio, um, Moral Fascist and 19th Century Esthete, these sorts of titles. So, those, have a look at those. Any more questions? Any more questions? No. Yes. Any thoughts on this philosopher, Chan Tenzi? He was the Yes, he was. He was very influenced by Hegel. He was, um, he was an extreme idealist philosopher. Uh, the idea that, uh, that what you perceive external to yourself is reality uh, and that you can't entirely prove that what you have in your own mind might be reality, these Bishop Bertie type ideas. Um, Gentini was made Minister of Education by Mussolini, yet another example of quite extreme intellectuals who were involved in the Italian dictatorship, as it then was. Um, yes, he was fundamentally involved, and he was much more conversant with 19th century high European theory than someone like Denuncio would have been. Denuncio would have been an aesthete, really. It's like saying, is D.H. Lawrence influenced by particular theoretical intellectuals in the 19th century in English literature? And the answer is no. But is, does he come out of a culture that is influenced by such figures? then the answer is yes. And is he aware of Bergson? Is he aware of um, Nietzsche? Is he aware of vitalism? Is he aware of doctrines about evolution and so on? Then the answer is clearly yes. Literary writers tend not to be influenced by philosophers per se, but tend to take a wide range of influences into themselves. They're samplers of culture. They're not academics, you see. They don't ground themselves on a particular discipline. They seek to channel such disciplines through their own work. Any more? Yes? Yeah. G given that perhaps the, the, the only British equivalent that springs to mind of, uh, or anything near uh, British equivalent of D'Annunzio's occupation of Fiume would be the entirely fictional uh, Ealing comedy passport to Pimlico. <laughs> uh, is, is, is there something, do you think, in the, in, in the British mindset uh, the, the, the empiricist approach to, to, to philosophy and politics 
or or or, or just something more more and more transient that prevents Britons uh, taking or prevents Britons taking on board such. Uh, Grand artistic endeavours when it when when it comes to our politics, is 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 it something fundamental about Britons that uh, that, that that prevents us being interested in such things, and consigns uh, artistic politicians such as uh, George Bernard Shaw to the margins of being gadflies? Yes, that's a very good point. Actually, I think uh, I think there's quite a lot in there. Somebody like Denunzio, even today, even though he was successful, even in his own terms, even though he was notorious also strikes the Anglo-Saxon mind as almost a joke figure, mm. a joke dictator ranting on balconies towards screaming and adoring crowds, also a playwright, what's all a novelist, what's all that about? That um, strikes something, it's something slightly absurd, and yet that's only because our politics has taken such a, a bourgeois road, has mm -hmm. taken such a parliamentary road. There's also a degree to which you just go over the sea to Ulster, for example, and the entire prognosis is reversed. And the sort of politics that the spirit of Denuncio is much closer to thrive, or has thrived there anyway, from the late 19th, middle of the 19th century, right the way through to almost the present day, you could say rhetorically, even the present day. But Marx always said that the pressing ground of the English Revolution would be in Ireland. And because uh, Marx had paradoxical ideas about nationality, which don't entirely fit in with later Marxist theories. For instance, he was very pro-German and anti-Star, unlike his rival Bakunin, who was the opposite. So there's a degree to which, um, yes, I think there's a degree to which that sort of politics is considered like Latin American revolutionary politics, you know? A sort of absurd, violent cabaret, a sort of politicised spaghetti western by an element of the British mindset, particularly the English mindset. Mm. But I think that's purely because English politics has become so sedentary. If things livened up a bit, then such mm -hmm. figures appear less absurd and appear more dangerous and therefore interesting. Mm. Yeah. Steve Brady again. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, I could follow up on, on uh, that uh, on very interesting point. There is, of course, a much character much nearer in time uh, analogy to what uh, Dinantio did, which was the 1916 Easter Rising, mm. which is also conceived by a group of people, some of whom were intellectuals of their own kind, and I, I speak now some of who never be accused of with their idea of it. But nonetheless, they, they uh, conceived the whole thing in, in terms of political theatre and in terms of a grand gesture, uh, and also in a way that I'm sure Dinantio would not have seen in a, a sense of a sort of sacramental offering of, of, of uh, uh, like a, a sacrificial mass almost, an offering, offering a sacrifice uh, in, a, in, a, in a very highly theological Catholic sense, a blood sacrifice for, 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 for Ireland. And I, I wonder if, in fact, Denuncio may not partly have been inspired by that as an example of a grand, grand and apparently futile uh, gesture uh, of national affirmation, however much I don't agree with it. Yes, I think that's a very good point, actually, because I think if you have to, to look for Denunzian gestures, you have to go outside of Anglophone politics for the last couple of centuries. But in the British Isles, the way to find it is to go for the Celtic politics of the last couple of centuries. And yes, there is something slightly perfect about the Easter Rising, 
And uh, by executing nearly all of the political goal of the military leaders, the British, of course, mythologized those leaders and partly gave them what they wanted. What they didn't want as individuals, maybe, but what they would hunger for collectively. It's Yeats's idea of a terrible beauty is born. And the Celtic nationalist movements have often been a hodgepodge of dissident, querulous figures, fringe intellectuals, mystics, people who didn't otherwise fit in. Was it the Polish countess who was part of the oh, yeah. early uh, Republican movement? Uh, Griffiths founding Sinn Féin when he was a Welsh Protestant. Uh, all sorts of other Protestants involved in the creation of these movements that would later be seen in a very different coloration. Uh, movements of romantic outsiders, essentially. Many who, of whom who were, who were not just charlatans, because they were prepared to pay for their lives in many ways, in relation to their beliefs. And it's partly a hungering for un-bourgeois lifestyles, isn't it? It's a hungering for <coughs> lifestyles which are non-sedentary and non-mercantile and not safe. It's a hungering for the heroic, isn't it, really? And if you can't find the heroic in your own nationality, you might seek it in another one. Or you might seek it by being a third force in relation to another one. Or being, uh, I think in a more rudimentary way, the man who joins the Foreign Legion, the French Foreign Legion, often German or Russian or Yugoslav and this sort of thing, it goes all around the world fighting for France, and the French don't really want you on their territory, but at the same time you fight for them all over the world, and they'll take anyone of any background, no matter, you know, extraordinary reprobates and people with large records of villainy, even that can be whitewashed and written off when you join the Legion. Uh, Ernst Jünger joined the Legion, of course, as a schoolboy almost, because of an extraordinary worship of the heroic and, an, uh, and the belief that uh, uh, bourgeois life had to be transcended and then immediately joins up with German arms at 1914 on the film was the first day of the outbreak of war. So yes, I think you have to look to these Celtic examples and even the very, very fringe elements in Welsh and Scottish nationalism as well, which have always had those sort of eccentric bohemian paramilitary currents of the heroic and the forceful. Um, but of course it's not, th these things can be too often dubbed climactic or temperamental. I mean in the 1640s, and so England went through periods of dislocation and revolutionary energy of a sort that many continental countries have not seen. And it's almost as if the English spirit of extreme internecine violence and revolutionary ardour came a bit too early for contemporary modernity. Uh, I think, you know, you had men catapulted to power from extreme obscurity during that period. You had revolutionary movements like Puritanism and so on that <coughs> affected the whole nature of the society and the arts. You have a revolutionary England that bans the stage, England's greatest art form, and bans, the th bans Shakespeare, England's greatest writer and yet he's also a national dictatorship of a sort. So you have extraordinary medley of interconnected forces at any time. I often think, but you're right, if you have four centuries of pragmatism, and four centuries of empiricism, and four centuries of good sense, you will end up with a rather self-satisfied, unheroic and rotund polity.
But I don't think it's English by definition. I think it's what the English have become. <laughs>